We often talk about the power of storytelling for spreading ideas and creative work. In this episode, I talk to the founder and chief presentation officer of Missing Link, Richard Mulholland, who's known to many as Rich, about being an enthralling stage storyteller. Rich has captivated audiences with his talks in over 30 countries on six continents. What I realized is that I spend a lot of time trying to build my audience, but actually it's way, way easier tapping into people with audience of their own. He is the author of Boredom Slayers, Legacide, and Here Be Dragons, three books that will certainly change your perspective. He shares some of his time-tested strategies to becoming a compelling stage story seller, a phrase he coined in Here Be Dragons. So when this opportunity came up, when the pandemic happened, it was just a chance for us to reinvent and reinvigorate the business and what we did. And it was very, very easy and obvious the choice we made. Uh, we just made it slightly quicker than most other people. Keep listening to make the shift from a creative process to a compelling creative strategy that helps your ideas stick. When you're presenting in person, your job is to hold an audience's attention, right? So you just gotta keep them interested. However, when you're presenting online, your job is to interrupt their distraction. Please subscribe to The Lead Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead Creative Podcast, where we talk to creative industry leaders, influencers, and brands. We discuss the strategies that influence brand thinking and shape industries. Thought leaders and heads of agencies let us in on some of their thinking and insights. I'm your host, Mongi Zimtati. Enjoy the show and please share and subscribe. Rich, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Me too, dude. And I'm glad you are back in South Africa at the moment. So yeah, so it's good. Yeah, thanks. It was, uh, I've also been looking forward to this. It's been a little while coming, so, so let, let's not be shit. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, Rich, just to start off, how do you think starting your career as a rock and roll roadie where you experienced some of your favorite bands on the road and on stage influence your approach to work and creative thinking in life and in Missing Link? Well, one of the biggest things that I actually don't get to talk about enough around that was the influence of my boss, a guy by the name of Offer Lapide. So he had a very... When, often when I look back at how I run Missing Link and how I am as a person, I see so many echoes of Offer in the way that he treated us as staff, the way he ran his business. He had this attitude where if you wanted to do business with him, amazing. He was going to do the best job he possibly could. But if you treated him or his crew terribly, then that was it. You were done. I remember one day he, uh, we had somebody that was throwing a rave arrive in the office and was flirting with the receptionist and offer walked past in his shorts and t-shirt and and he could see this happening and he said uh can i help you and the guy's like uh no thank you she's helping me just fine and he was like uh no i said can i help you and he said look i'm a customer here you don't have to worry and <laughs> offer turned around and said no you're not and threw him out the business and said brian brian bring me this idiot's check and then the guy had to write a letter of apology back and I see so much of that in how I, how I want to run Missing Link as a business and, and how it's become. So it's more than just the influence of rock and roll, but actually working for a rock and roll company. Uh, I'm way more influenced by the company I worked at, Gearhouse, than the, the bands necessarily that I worked with. 
It's not as sexy as an answer, but it's definitely true. No, that's, that's, I mean, that's a great answer. And something that I think back to having uh, worked and hot desked out of Missing Link uh, for a while when I started out is how I felt as though you almost handpicked every single person who worked at Missing Link where the culture was so strong across the team that, that I get this sense that, that, that I suppose you wanted a certain, you wanted a certain kind of caliber of person to work there rather than just people just sort of seat warmers if you will yeah so we had common uncommonality which was important right so the one great advantage you have about when you're on a fringe industry like presentations is that there's not you know there's not like a, a whole bunch of people leaving university uh, in presentation design or presentation strategy or things like that. So what happened is, and I was also very young, you know, I was 22 years old, is that I had to handpick people that A, I could afford and B, that I wanted to work with. So I found a lot of them at, uh, you know, either one of two areas, really. Either there was somebody I met through punk rock or one of my hobbies, punk rock, ice hockey, uh, uh, kung fu, something like that. Or it was somebody who impressed me in a retail environment. So in a restaurant or in a shop or things like that. And then I was like, wow, you can't let this talent go. And then I hired them. So we, people often thought that we were all the same, that we had that common thing. But what made us common is we were all just equally removed from center. So we were equal levels different to the norm uh, rather than being the same. And when I, when I realized that was our trick, I started spotting people that were equally different uh, and trying to bring them in. That's interesting. Um, one of the things that, that um, Missing Link has, which I've seen as, as an outsider and to a point as someone who was close uh, to Missing Link, was that you had all the ingredients, if you will, to build a creative agency. Everything... Um, that I think ad agencies of the time or, or boutique agencies had, and yet you kept it as a uh, presentation strategy firm. Can you take us through why that was and why you stayed in that, in that particular niche? Well, creative industries uh, didn't excite me at all. Uh, like, if anything, I really, really find them quite deplorable. <laughs> so, so it wasn't something that I ever had any. It was an easy decision in that it was absolutely not a decision. I had no interest in making other people's adverts, right? It just is not something that excited me. Uh, Missing Link looks and feels and acts like a creative agency until you dig deeper. But at the core of what Missing Link does is deep communication strategy on human-to-human -human communication. We always, you know, very, very early on, when we were still in the office before you came to uh, in Ramberg, we, I, I remember going to everybody in the team and said, guys, it doesn't matter what you do in this business, whether you're a video editor or a designer or did interactive work, if somebody asks you what you do, you're a presentation strategist. And that was core to everything that we did. Everything that we do is in service of strategically making presentation better. And I didn't think that, you know, while all of our contemporaries at that time wore suits and ties, if you went to another presentation business at that time, it looked a bit more like an old school PR agency with, you know, you know grown ups in, in suits. But we didn't see it that way. We saw it uh, in a slightly different way. And while our clients were big, large corporates, we knew that we weren't. And I also understood that they were coming to us for a solution to boring presentations. So they wanted a company that looked not boring to do that. And so that's why we set out to do it. 
one of the things you've you've said in in one of your talks is that you want to remain a perpetually small business. Can you talk us through what you mean by that and 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 how you you landed at at wanting to remain a perpetually small business? Yeah, so I don't know. We've we've kind of grown a few times, like, and we've got to the most we ever were. We're never big, but the most we ever were was I think thirty-two people, and I didn't enjoy it at all. I felt that the culture became a little bit unmanageable. I wasn't able to to have the same level of connection I had with the team that we had, and it was a little bit difficult to maintain control of that. Now, while I say I like being a small business, what I mean is I want to be a tiny, tiny, epic business. I want to be a small business with a big footprint. So we want the impact of what we do as a business to be large, but we don't necessarily feel the need to grow uh, in headcount to do that. We'd like to make more money, but we don't need to make a lot of money. Uh, missing link, you know, doesn't need to, there's no part of my, my personal balance sheet or checklist of what I deem to be successful that kind of feels like I need to have significantly more than I have now. So that idea of growth for the sake of growth just doesn't make any sense to me growth for the sake of keeping momentum but you see businesses do that anyway because you have attrition people leave people come in things change the world changes and you've got to kind of grow inside the business so it's very very important for me that the people inside missing link grow very important but it's not important that missing link grows itself other than its impact I get that. I get that. Uh, one of the things that happened during the pandemic when uh, business was struggling and there were changes in events and, of course, uh, Missing Link did a lot of work at the time and still does events that were in person because we all did in-person events before the pandemic and the pandemic hits and events stopped. Um, how did that change the course that Missing Link took? Because I know that... There, was, there were challenges, but the business also grew at the time and you changed your strategy. Um, how did you change your strategy, first of all, and how did you manage the team's perspective to work alongside that change? Well, how did we change? Change had to happen, right? So there was, there was no way we could continue. There were not going to be events happening. There was no chance of us doing what we traditionally did. But from week one, I was excited. Like, uh, it just never, when everyone was talking about how devastating and horrible it was, and I understood that there was devastating, horrible things happening, I just didn't see it that way. We went to revenue zero, and it was exciting again. And part of the reason for that is Missing Link had become uh, dull and boring and safe, right? We had become a business that was very, very comfortable. And again, let's go back to your previous question. So I said to you that I don't need more money particularly. So because of that... Uh, Missing Link was kind of in cruise control, right? So because it's hard, it's easier to actually work really, really hard when you need to grow. And for some entrepreneurs, that is that they are too small. They need to grow to survive. Because I don't have that, uh, it kind of sometimes can run the risk of becoming relatively, you know, bland. And so when this opportunity came up, when the pandemic happened, it was just a chance for us to reinvent and reinvigorate the business and what we did. And it was very, very easy and obvious, the choice we made. Uh, we just made it slightly quicker than most other people. Uh, on the Sunday that before actually lockdown was announced, but the state of disaster was announced, I wrote a blog post saying, don't cancel your events, move them online. And I wrote an explanation as to why I think that was important, centered around the idea that people need more uh, vocal and visual leadership now than they ever have before. 
If you thought you needed a conference in 2019, you definitely need one in 2020. You just have to think about it in a different way. And that resonated with their customers. They knew they had to speak to their staff, but also what was exciting was that everybody thinks they're okay at presenting, but everybody knew they weren't okay at presenting online. So all of a sudden, they, their inexperience was showing and they needed somebody to help them. Now, I had no idea what I was doing. I invited everybody to a masterclass and I think it worked out to the 28th, so 13 days you know, into lockdown. And the masterclass was how to run an event, online event like a pro. What I didn't tell anyone is that that was going to be the first online event I'd ever run. So I had no idea what we were doing, but we all figured it out together. And the great thing is, is when the entire world is at a three out of 10 in skill, if you're a four out of 10, you're winning. So we knew we didn't have to be experts. We just had to be experts relative to them. And that's all we did throughout the pandemic is we stayed one step ahead uh, up until, you know, in... I think it was September of 2019 was our best revenue month since we started the business. Did it? Did the pandemic and going online change the way we 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 tell stories and the kind of stories that that we tell? No, I don't think so. At least not in my mind. The it might have changed some of the delivery aspects and some of the visual support tools. So I found when I was speaking online, I would want to have more slide changes or scene changes. I would want to do things faster. But the storytelling aspects of how I would deliver a talk would be the same because the rules are, are, are still fundamental. In terms of, though, feeding off of the audience, because there's this, there's this engagement between yourself and the audience as a speaker, right? How do, you, how do you ensure that you still maintain that between yourself and your audience when you are at home in your studio presenting to an audience in New York City, for instance? Yeah, it's tricky, right? So the one thing I guess that changes, and that's what I talk about with regards to scene changes and slide changes and things, is that yeah. when you're presenting in person, your job is to hold an audience's attention, right? So you just got to keep them interested. However, when you're presenting online, your job is to interrupt their distraction. There's the idea that you can hold somebody staring at a screen for an hour is ludicrous. It's, I mean, it's, it's fantasy, so what you're trying to do is to win them back at key moments. So all you want to do is make sure that actually that you don't become a podcast. If you're specifically trying to do a presentation, you want to make sure that they are engaged in that way. And the way to do that is to constantly call them back. So we would do a few things. We would, uh, I would cue people up with terms like, you know, as the next slide I'm going to show you, I think is pivotal. And you'll see when you see this. That. And so what happens is I've created curiosity. You're like, well, what am I going to see? What is this next slide? And you'll come back. The other thing, of course, is that one of the great things about presenting online is you can actually chat to your audience throughout. So we would uh, really, really do our best to engage with audiences, to keep them chatting, to keep them engaged throughout, have polls and, and comment storms and things like that. And you get a very different experience. It makes people feel intimate. Now, I found that the effect of this has worn off slightly as the novelty has worn off. So now we're at the point in which half the online events that I sign up for, I basically sign up for them, I wait for them to send me the recording, and I watch it like I'm watching a Joe Rogan episode, which is, right, you know, right. I don't get that same level of engagement. If you're enjoying The Lead Creative, please share this episode with your network and hit follow or subscribe. Enjoy the show. Mm -hmm. 
So, Rich, you've written three books um, that are very sought after, spoken on stages in over 30 countries, and you help leading brands tell their stories effectively, right? You and your team are also instrumental in bringing the Coke Fest to life. How would you describe your creative process? Um, I, I don't think it's a creative process. I think it's a strategic process. So uh, we don't look for creativity as a byproduct or creativity of less. Okay. Let's first of all separate creativity and how we think about it in terms of creative agencies and creativity in the fact that architecture is creative, accounting is creative. You, you are creating something. So all strategy work is, is by, by design creative. But for us, it's very, very simple. Uh, we simply go into it, everything about Missing Link, the way it works, and I guess even the way that I write and the way that I create content is all around what is a problem I'm trying to solve. Job number one is to convince you that you have the problem, and job number two is to convince you that I can help you solve it. Job number three is to get you to solve it or to give you the tools you need, and job number four is uh, to kind of provoke you to do something. And that framework, we refer to it as our action framework. Give them a reason to care, give them a reason to believe, tell them what they need to know, tell them what they need to do, is core to everything that we do. So the way I write a talk starts, for example, uh, you know, if I'm writing a talk, I have in Rome a whole bunch of prompts. And I'll take you through some of the, the questions that, that it you know, forces me to ask myself. So if I'm, if I'm doing a talk prep, and I want to go through and, you know, ask myself a whole bunch of questions, it's going to ask me lots of things like, what is the exigence? What am I hoping the audience should do? What do I want uh, to happen as a result of when I'm finished? How should I open? How should I close? All of those things. Mm. And that's the same yeah. for everybody else. Mm. So, so there's, there's, there, there, there's that, of course, there's the process of you doing talks and you working with the team, right? Um, you also wrote... Um, Legacide, for instance, in a flight from Joburg to Cape Town, and you wrote Here Be Dragons in two weeks. Prior to that, you were writing blog posts and columns across the board in various publications. What do you do to maintain that creative space? And, and I'm using creativity loosely here, but what do you do to maintain that creative space over a sustained period when you have all these moving parts that still happen as part of life? Idea traps. Idea traps. So, you know Don, Don Packett, uh, yeah. ex-business partner Missing Link, uh, amazing guy. And Don started doing stand-up comedy years ago. And what he did is I noticed something interesting uh, to the point we had a business called Human Rights, which was a notebook company. And uh, Don, you know, he obviously had the big human rights writable that we had, but he always carried with him a small little notebook like a moleskin or a field notes in his back pocket. And the reason yeah. was that as soon as he put a notebook in his pocket, he reminded every morning, he reminded himself that he was a comedian looking for material. And just the act of having a notebook in your pocket meant that we'd be sitting at a restaurant somewhere and the waiter would come by and something funny would happen. And we'd all laugh about it. The waiter would walk away, but then Don would take out his notebook and he would start writing. And I saw this as an idea trap. It was a place to catch ideas that normally would come into your brain, you'd think about them for a second and they would go away. So um, mm. I have a whole bunch of idea traps. At the moment, I've decided that my focus this year is actually to be funnier on stage. I feel like I've become a bit bland. And so I want to try and focus on comedy and making better comedy and bringing some of that back into my uh, keynotes. 
So I have a, literally a comedy idea trap. I added something in this morning uh, from the talk that actually you were at where I spoke about uh, the idea of uh, putting rosemary oil in my hair to stop going bald. Yeah, yeah. And so I thought yes. about that and I thought, ooh, and I remembered that. And I thought, ooh, let me add that to my, my comedy idea trap. So I make sure instead of it just being something that happened off the cuff, it's something that happens later. And the moment I start writing a book, like the book Streaks that I'm working on at the moment, I have an idea trap. And when I see an article, because that trap exists, I immediately think to myself, ooh, I've got to add this article in. So when it goes to writing and creating later, there is a lot of content that already exists. But until you create that idea trap, you've not told your brain that it's intentionally looking for things. And the closest metaphor I can think for that is like when you know you're buying a new car and your, your brain all of a sudden starts seeing that car everywhere, that's exactly this. When you know you're writing a book on the topic of streaks, you start seeing streaks everywhere. So creating that trap is pivotal. Then if you have these idea traps set, for instance, with your current book, Streaks, do you then, in, in, in every other interaction and every other engagement that you have with a client or whatever else, and you see that, you then kind of note it and, and, and expand on it later? Right. So the moment, let's say we're chatting about something and, and something you said, uh, you know, feels like something that I want to add to that book. I open my phone, I double tap on the screen... Uh, double tap on the screen and then what happens is it immediately opens brain toss i can record a voice note as i'm going talking about this and i can mention the word streak in it and then i hit send and then it emails it to myself when i go back in that me message is transcribed everything is sitting there and i then later on go and i import that into rome research in which i run my my uh idea traps but it's the idea of not letting anything go. As soon as I see something that I think could be an article I'm reading, uh, uh, a highlight on Readwise, I will tag it with the idea trap, the appropriate idea trap, so it just sits there. And it, it's kind of that idea that I read once and I loved it, is that we don't write things down to remember, we write them down to forget. The reason you make a note is so that you're allowing your brain to forget it, to say you don't have to hold this in short-term memory. When you're ready later and you're looking for this, it'll be waiting where you need it. And so I'm very intentional about that, about constantly curating content into little areas that future me will find. Uh, and, you know, it's so one day I'll be writing a talk on a certain topic and I will search my idea traps uh, and I'll be, ooh, okay, I found content on this that, I, you know, I never knew that if I would definitely need. But that's how the writing comes easy. That's that's yeah, that makes sense, and and it's a it's a very it's a very useful strategy, I think that that a lot of us can take away and and, and use as we as we go. You often say that we we take what we know for granted because we think that everybody else knows it, right? Like if if you are an expert in a field or you work with a particular task or thing on a daily basis we tend to believe that everybody else knows it and that it's obvious to everyone, right? How do you step out of that and see the very same things that you've seen and spoken about over and over again with fresh eyes, with a new perspective, so that you share these with someone else? Well, knowing that you suffer from the curse of knowledge is fantastic. So uh, I, think, um, I think you know that I do craft hour every morning from 9 to 10, so every morning from 9 to 10, every workday, sorry, from 9 to 10, I focus only on learning about my own craft. So 
as I said to you at the moment, I'm sitting there and I'm uh, doing my best to try and learn how to be funny again. So this morning's craft hour was reading the book Mastering Stand-Up. And I was reading that and I had Rome open. That's why I added that into my idea trap. And I constantly try focus on having a beginner's mindset. So by most people try to learn things outside of their knowledge set. So I have learned this, therefore, I don't need to, I need to learn something else. Where I try to learn things inside my knowledge set. You see, I'm going for functional knowledge, knowledge that I can actively use. So my craft is presentation and I need to learn from other people and it's an evolving craft. And what keeps me with that beginner's mindset is listening and learning things in that sphere because it forces me to realize, and again, you very quickly realize, oh, I've never thought about that before. This morning I was learning about uh, how comedians like John Flismas work the crowd. And, you know, I always just thought John Flismas was brilliant, and he is. But what I realize now is that John Flismas is following a four-step formula in what's referred to as crowd calls. And I'd never known that was a thing. But now I do. So something that I thought that I understood a degree of, you know, by, by putting yourself into that beginner's position, it opens up the possibilities of just so much more knowledge. What do you find are some of the most common hurdles to articulating ideas clearly in a way that increases adoption for those ideas? The number one hurdle to being a better presenter, a better stage storyteller, is that you think you're good enough already. Okay, so the curse of knowledge. Literally, this, uh, the number one challenge that Missing Link has in changing the world is people not wanting to be changed. You know, we talk about minimum viable products. The minimum viable presentation, though, isn't. Uh, you know, if, if the acceptable standard for presenting a message was the same, or if the acceptable standard for swimming was the same as the acceptable standard for presenting, uh, people would drown. The, the acceptable standard for delivering a presentation in a corporate boardroom is so low, it's laughable. The problem is that we confuse the amount of time on the mat, the amount of time on stage presenting with skill growth. And the closest analogy I can think for that is uh, I've been typing my entire you know, adult life uh, and I got to an okay plateau. I reached a point in which I'm kind of good enough at typing. I can get by. It's not horrific, but I'm not a good typist. Now, I've typed more than most you know, people have presented. Heck, I reckon I've typed more than most professional speakers have presented. And yet, I'm terrible at typing. Like, if, if a typist was to look at me, they would say, you know, this is laughable. How have you not improved? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the problem is, is that we have to be in, on an active pursuit of improvement. There's not enough just to have 10,000 hours. If you're doing the same shitty thing, all you've done is habituated bad practice over and over again. Now... Our biggest challenge facing people presenting is a lack of desire to improve in this space uh, by, by far, by tenfold. Everything else is after that. The moment somebody decides that actually they realize they're not good and they want to improve because it matters, it's actually re relatively an easy skill to learn. So, okay, so, so, so basically that, that, that's, um, we, because we, we get stuck in this place of thinking we're good enough, we don't, we try to not improve. Except at, 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 in some instances, right, as people who work in corporate do whatever jobs we do where we present every now and again, we present 
far less than say yourself as a speaker or anybody else how do we then how do we improve the skill so that we become better at it when we don't get the practice with an audience as much right well so every even a small presentation to a team internally is an opportunity for you to grow so the bottom line is you do need to get time practicing a presentation is a skill that you can only practice in public you can practice presenting all day long at home by yourself and it feels different the moment you get in front of a stage and the lights are on or even in a boardroom with just five people and members of your team standing in front of you, right? It's, it's just there's something about that. What's at stake when, when you're standing being judged by other humans? Yeah, yeah. That's actually why we created the Atomic Talks platform is that I wanted, it, I wanted people to get the reps in when it didn't matter so that they had the skill when it does. And so what we did is we created a free platform called Atomic Talks. It's atomictalks.com. And people can go there. And I've turned business books into short 10-minute presentations that people can do to their team or with their team, make them interactive. And what we're trying to do is to let people understand that with good content, uh, well-structured content, presenting well is easy. So this is our core belief at Missing Link, is that in the skill versus system matrix, you're not a bad presenter because you're not able to communicate. You're a bad presenter because what you're communicating is badly prepared. Right, so if we can fix the, if you can have a better system for generating presentation content, the skill is a natural byproduct. You will get better just because the way you structured your content lends yourself to delivering a more logical, coherent message. Whereas when you've just got random data points all over the place and they're they're thrown together in a way that you would never follow conversationally, all of a sudden it's hard for you to be a compelling presenter. And of course, the, 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 our, our use of PowerPoint, which I'm a fan of, but our use of PowerPoint, the way that we use it is often so bad that it works against us. So we have to fix how we write what we say uh, before we fix how we say it. Right, right. In your book, um, Here Be Dragons, you drive home the point of um, story selling. And... I, I firstly, I'd like you to explain what story selling is uh, for our listeners. And then from there, why should we then go beyond telling stories to story selling? Okay, so there's a lot we can unpack with storytelling itself. Uh, storytelling is, it's dangerous. It's, it's very in vogue and people love talking about it. But first of all, it's not, it's not the be all and end all. It is a tool and it's a tool that has a very, very specific purpose People are not using that tool for its purpose. What they're doing is that they're hammering it in. They're just using it as a one-size-fits-all. Oh, I'll get on stage and I'll tell stories. That's not the job. There are very specific stories that you have to tell at the right time. The second thing is, and this will lead us into story selling, is the understanding when people hear storytelling, they think, oh, I must tell my story. The problem is most people don't care about your story. You're not that special. Unless you are, right? If you're an Olympic-level athlete, uh, who, you know, left the Olympics to go and save your family from a burning fire, then, yeah, I want to hear your story. You know, that's, that's amazing. But the most of us, if I'm a person who's built a middle-of-the-road business in South Africa that does certain things, you know, works in a presentation space, my story isn't inherently interesting unless it is. So my story is always in service of your story. So what's story selling then? Well, the, what we really want to do when we talk about 
story and storytelling is it's not never about actually humans standing up and telling stories. It's about having your your audience rewrite the story of their brain into such a way that they live in a world that is now different because you're there. Okay, so we all live in a world right now. We, we tell ourselves stories all the time and we have an expectation of what's going to happen later on today. If I can sell you a new version of that story, then everything changes. So what if I said to you, I could tell you a story in which all of you start thinking differently about the reputation, how people perceive you every time you're standing in front of them. And I sell you a story on how, what opportunities can exist for the 1% of people who take this seriously. Well, all of a sudden you start thinking about it, you know, and think about it. And I say to yourself, well, imagine yourself, imagine, imagine you are invited to speak in the TED stage. And imagine you stand on that TED stage and you deliver a talk that just resonates with the world. And I want you to imagine, Mungesi, that when, after this happens, something just clicks over. And all of a sudden, you, you're watching when the day that video goes live and it starts going, you know, 100,000 views, 200,000 views, a million views, 2 million views, 5 million views, 20 million views. Right? And I know what that felt like. That day, my Goldcast video went out and it was 20 million views. And, you know, I was like, what? I want you to imagine the change that that could make in your life. And I want you to decide, imagine for yourself, you know, if that is possible, and if you understand that the difference between you and Simon Sinek is eight minutes, right? That, you know, Simon Sinek, nobody knew. Do you know, did you know Simon Sinek before the Y talk? No, I, I, went, to, I went and searched, searched for him Afterwards, after that. Yeah, right? Yeah. So Simon Sinek, yeah. before Simon Sinek did that talk, he was just Mungesi Mtati. Like there was, there was nothing else. He was just you. The only difference is that he decided to take to the stage. Now, let's say I've done, I've sold you of that story. You now live in a world where you're one TED talk away from being Simon Sinek. That's what I'm saying. And Simon Sinek himself wouldn't have believed it if I told him that then, but somehow he did. He decided to be that guy. He told the story and the magic happened. Now, if I can sell you that story, I'm not telling you a story. I'm selling you a story in which you live in a world now where the opportunity is that you could become the next Simon Sinek. The upside is now you live in a world in which you have a dragon you need to slay. How do I write a TED Talk at that level and deliver at that level? Now, that's where I come in because, of course, Missing Link holds a weapon that will help you do that. So we want to give you that weapon. The job of us is never to tell you a story. Missing Link has been around for this long. We do these things. It's to sell you a story in which you exist in a world in which you now need us. Now, that's true in any sales or even audience environment. If at the beginning of my talk, I have to make you, I have to sell you a story in which you exist in a world in which there is a gap in your knowledge, in which you're curious about solving and you care about solving. Then I have to make you trust me. Then I have to give you the information. Then I got to light a fire in your ass. So that was a long answer, but it kind of took us around the whole journey. Now you speak for ages. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I mean, there are a couple of questions that come up uh, for me, I think. And the first one is around, um, around that skull Goldcast video that you that you mentioned now, where that got 20 million odd views. And prior to that, of course, you had been speaking, you had been on stages and all of this, but this one video almost changed it all, right? Or changed a lot around the number of um, people or audiences who knew about you. How did that, did that in any way, I think, 
first of all, of course, it led to better opportunities, but how did it change your style or your outlook or or the way that you approached presentations after that? Oh, it didn't change that at all. And in fact, it was tricky because the Goldcast video took an, a part of a presentation that wasn't my normal style of presentation, and the, but it was the style that Goldcast were looking for. It took that part of the presentation, and I was really angry that day. I'd, I'd had a fight with the organizer. I'd threatened to walk out of the gig. I was feeling like I didn't want to be on stage. We were an hour late. The event was maybe, I think... I was supposed to be, the event was supposed to finish at 9 p.m. and I went on stage at like 10 or something like that. It was, I was raging when I went on. So my emotions were real. And by the end of it, that kind of fueled emotion of the, my anger and frustration getting on the stage turned into the delivery emotion that, that was captured in that video. So the first biggest challenge I had was, well, I immediately realized that uh, an audience, you know, there is an audience for this type of content, but I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be this heartfelt motivational speaker. That wasn't my angle. That never is who I wanted to be. I can exist like that in, in events and places, but I want to provoke thought, not motivate people. So that was, that was the first thing. The second thing was my realization about growing an audience. So that was fleeting, right? That was your, you know, whatever you'd call it, your, you know, five minutes of fame for me. It was very, very fleeting. I did grow a little bit of a following through Facebook and things like that uh, a bit. What it did help me with is close tours that I was trying to book much faster. What it didn't help me with was necessarily grow my audience because what actually happened is I didn't have an audience of 20 million. Goalcast had an audience of 20 million. And what I realized is that I spend a lot of time trying to build my audience, but actually it's way, way easier tapping into people with audience of their own. This is the reason I'm on your podcast and I don't host one of my own. Because what, what everybody needs, if you're trying to build your reputation, what you need at the beginning and growing your audience will be a byproduct of this is you need this amazing, amazing commodity called OPA other people's audience, right? In Goldcast, I managed to get some of other people's audience and it changed my trajectory that way, it made me realize that that's what I've got to tap into. I've not managed to crack it yet, but, but that's definitely the mission. If you're enjoying The Lead Creative, please share this episode with your network and hit follow or subscribe. Enjoy the show. Coming out of that, um, coming out of that, of course, you you now had this. You know, you had a much bigger audience, or and you had a lot more people who've seen that video in a style that isn't your usual style of presenting, right? And then, of course, you then go on um, to now um, present in other countries where the cultures are different. Um, I can't remember where you were um, recently, but uh, but I think. It was, I think, Dubai, if I'm not oh, mistaken. I was in Oman and Bahrain late last year. I'm off to Kuwait in two weeks. Right. So, so with with places like Oman and Kuwait, with this idea of story selling and the culture is so different in those areas. How do you find these nuggets of story that are culturally relevant across the board? Uh, I don't. 
I don't change, other than anecdotally, I don't change and evolve who I am much. Uh, my presentation style and delivery is very, very similar. I'm still cheeky. I'm still off the wall a little bit. And it's because I work under the assumption that people hired me for a reason, right? Nobody hired you because they want a Middle Eastern man on stage. They hired you because they decided they want a little bit of a left field uh, tattooed hooligan on the stage. So I have to give people what they booked me for. And so it's very, very important you understand why are people hiring you in the first place and people aren't hiring you to be like them. However, there are times in which I might adapt slightly. You know, I always want to try bring in some sort of local joke and cultural relevance and things like that. But the most important thing for me, how I win audiences over when I do, is that instead of me trying to go to their place, I try to bring them to mine. So I will try to find uh, what in classical rhetoric was referred to as a common place. What do we have in common? What, where are we peers? Where are we the same? And so when I get on stage very, very early on, what I'm trying to create is sameness. But I'm trying to create that sameness in my style. So I remember once years ago, I was speaking at a, an event in Guadalajara, Mexico. And it was people from all over Latin America and North America, a very, very mixed audience. And I knew that I wanted to win them over. And I was quite nervous about the multicultural aspects of it. So when I went on stage, I said to them, sure, guys, I, I'm going to have to ask you a favor before I start today. Uh, uh, I'm... Uh, here today, but I probably shouldn't be. You see, it was my son's birthday, and it was Callum's 14th birthday, I think, at the time. And so I'm going to need to ask you a favor, make things a little bit uncomfortable. But before we start, I need to ask you a favor. Would you mind singing happy birthday to my son? I promised him that I would. And everybody cheered. And everybody sang happy birthday to my son, and it was amazing. Now, all of a sudden, I exist in a common place that I'm not a weird tattooed guy. I'm a, I'm a dad. I'm a family man. All right? I'm just like many of them. The next thing I did is I turned around and said to them, uh, you know, this was through EO, it's an entrepreneur's organization. I said, I've been a member of this organization at the time for maybe five years, and I'm an entrepreneur like you. And so now I'm a, I'm a family man and I'm an entrepreneur. Now we have a lot in common. Now our shared context is high. Our differences feel small. And then the final thing that I did is I wanted to create a common place with my humor and restate them. So I said to them, you know, so funny on the way here, I said, like, I might be a little bit edgy and different to you guys, and I might look a bit weird. And you might wonder why you want to speak to this guy. But let, let's, I want to change your mindset here. And the way here, I watched the movie The Hangover. Have any of you seen the movie The Hangover? And everyone's reaction is just to laugh. You think about the movie The Hangover, you smile and you laugh. And I said to them, I can guarantee you that I might try to say some things that you might not have expected somebody to say in a stage presentation. But I guarantee you that I will say nothing that is going to be as weird and out there as seeing that little Asian man's willy when he jumped out of the car boot. And everybody laughed. So now I've set the standard. I've changed the context of expectation from what I expect from a boardroom meeting to that Asian guy jumping out the boot of the car with his willy out. Now that's their, that's their bar. What happened is instead of me trying to exist in my audience's context, they now live in mine. And the best thing is, in my world, I'm the best. The only thing I am at the best at being in the world is I'm the best at being me. So the idea of you taking, going to your audience's level is nonsensical. What you want to do is bring your audience and create a common place and bring your audience to you. And that's how I manage it anywhere I am in the world. One of the things that's being talked about a lot at the moment uh, is AI. Um, and it's, of course, everywhere, everywhere you look across social media. Um, how do you think it can contribute to creative um, story selling, storytelling, and the spreading of ideas? Is, is it something usable? Huh. 
Of course. It's, I mean, I use it every day. It is an absolute opportunity. It's a, a phenomenal tool. So for example, I want to get a sense of material. So now what I've started doing, if I see interesting articles, what I do is I pop into ChatGPT, I paste the, I say, can you turn this article into a short, funny uh, presentation? Go. And it writes all the content. And it does some interesting things. Like it, it will actually tell you what you should do on stage, what you should do in different ways, uh, you know, how you can present in ways that you hadn't thought of. Uh, so, and it will, you know, you can summarize things just and get good ideas of content that you wouldn't otherwise use. You can obviously use it for research. It's just, it, right now, it's just a feature. We all need to become robot whisperers, right? That's, that's the future. The future belongs to those who can become robot whisperers better. Prompt specialists. So Rich, um, we've, we've talked about a lot and a lot that's very insightful. Um, thank you very much for making the time. In closing, how do people start the process of not only articulating their ideas, but sticking with them long enough? in their chosen spaces to become known for those ideas or at least what they believe about the world. Simon Sinek, who we spoke about earlier, he talks about James Carr's theory of an infinite versus a finite game a lot. And he talks a lot about business being an infinite game. I think that is a, a true and unhelpful. So the idea that business exists and runs forever is really, really good, but we don't like, we don't like thinking that way. We want to think finitely. We know this because we want stuff and then it arrives and then we want new stuff. So what we need to do is we need to create a finite game of everything we want to achieve. And that finite game needs to have a victory condition. Every single thing that I want in life, I've set a victory condition for. I have defined what success looks like uh, and what my goal is to go for it. So I do jujitsu. I'm currently a four-stripe white belt or a nurse system, a combatives belt. And my goal is to be a... Uh, Blue, get my blue belt and my first stripe by the end of this year. Now, I know that's quite aggressive and that is my victory condition. I'm going to be training as hard as much as I can in order to get there. Everything you want to achieve must have a predefined victory condition, which is a there by then. I need to be there. It needs to be measurable and it needs to be, have a date to it. And if you want to stick to anything, that's what you have to set yourself. Some form of strategic destination in the future that you'll get there. And then you have to break it down into the sum of its small parts. You're not trying to learn to do something. I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, my goal is to be a person who has a blue belt one stripe. But my journey to get there is to say, okay, for the next few weeks, I want to be training at least four times a week. I want to work on my side control. We have to get intentional and break things down into small little little tools and micro goals that will get us to where we need to be awesome that's uh that's very insightful rich thank you very much it was it was awesome and i have been looking forward to this for a long time it was worth the wait ah uh, thanks Mongezi. <laughs> it's always amazing chatting to you thank you for listening to the lead creative did you get one insight that's worth sharing from this episode please share it with your network or your friends pop me some of your ideas and innovative finds on twitter on at Mongesi. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find me on mongesi.com.